Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spark by Muse. I'm your host, Lisa Colon-Delay, and today we have on Matt and Ben from Gravity Leadership. I'm very excited to have them on, friends of the show, and we're going to be talking about their book, Having the Mind of Christ, Eight Axioms to Cultivate a Robust Faith. I was privileged to read an advanced copy of this and endorse this book, and it really has a lot to do with spiritual formation, leadership, and um, there's some Dallas Willard quotes in here, and he's my homeboy, so I, I knew right off the bat this would be an easy endorse for me. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, great to be with you, Lisa. Thanks for having us. Sure. And I want to hand it off to you pretty soon to, to just explain what is Gravity Leadership and what you're up to, as well as you are co-pastors at a church, and you can explain that too. I'm sure that the book is a help uh, as a resource for the people that you coach and, and consult. But I just wanted to read what these axioms are because I'm not in a leadership position specifically myself. I'm not really reading this as a leader or a pastor specifically, but I think that this really has an overflow to a lot of people, a lot of people mm -hmm. in my audience listening. And by the way, the promo code is SPARK22 before I forget <laughs> to say that. <laughs> SPARK22 and you'll get uh, a discount on this, which is just really fantastic. IVP is doing this until the end of August 2022, so jump in on that. But the axioms are, number one is, God is love, so it's all about love. Hmm. The second one, God is always present and at work. That's the Ignatian one I'm dear to my heart. <laughs> Axiom three, God is just like Jesus. God meets us in our messy reality. God cares about all of it and more than we do. God does the same work through us and in us. God's love always reckons with power, and God transforms us through embodied participation and the conclusion, which I hope to get to in, in this interview, acting as if it's true. So mm. thank you so much for putting in all the work it takes to make a book, which I know is a lot. <laughs> and maybe you guys can just um, take turns a little bit explaining what you're up to with gravity and, and the rest. Yeah. Ben, you want to do uh, gravity? Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Make, a, make a plan here. Uh, on the fly. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, the book does uh, flow out of the work that we do at Gravity. We um, um, coach and train uh, Christian leaders uh, and others, um, but focused on leaders uh, to root their lives and their leadership in the love of Christ, which kind of sounds, I don't know, every time I say it, I'm like, well, what does that actually mean? That's what we talk about. Um, but we, we do a lot of uh, yeah, coaching and training of leaders to basically make their leadership um, less of a matter of pragmatics, you know, less of a matter of like, how do I get my church bigger? How do I make sure people are doing what I want them to do? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, rooting it in, you know, what we might call just spiritual leadership of actually being able to notice what God is up to in and around us and open up space and train others to, 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 to create a community that actually knows how to discern what is God doing in our midst? How do we follow Jesus together as a community? So that's our heartbeat. That's our passion. We seek to make that super practical uh, for leaders. And that's what we've been doing for about ooh, seven years, something like that. So, yeah. so that's, yeah, that's gravity. And these axioms, I can, I can connect those dots uh, after a bit here uh, about the axioms, about where they came from. They came out of our 
uh, discipling of leaders locally in our church and also um, came out of uh, some of the glass walls that we kept hitting as we were trying to coach uh, different leaders, you know, that kind of thing. So, but yeah, it's a bit about gravity. Yeah. So uh, Ben and I co-pastor with another person, Spencer, um, a church in Indianapolis, Indiana called The Table. And that uh, came out of essentially Ben and I feeling like we had, we'd done some work with a parachurch organization uh, prior to starting Gravity and wanted to be, continue that work, but stay rooted in a local church and decided that we would plant one here in Indianapolis. So we started a church in Gravity in the same year which uh, was a bit crazy um, yeah. for two guys that d- don't necessarily, like we don't, we don't get filled up and energized by starting new things all the time. And so to have two things start in 2015, uh, unintentionally and uh, coincidentally lines up with uh, sort of the, a massive uh, cultural earthquake that's been going on for the last seven, eight years. Yeah which has made both gravity and the table, if things keep shifting and changing and we have to continue to recalibrate and adjust on the fly. Um, and it's, it's made the starting these things, I think take a little longer than, um, than we anticipated, but, um, I'm grateful. Our local church is amazing, great people. And I'm actually, I'm actually on sabbatical this summer. So Ben is holding down, uh, the fort. Uh, along with Spencer and um, another pastor there, Nancy. And so grateful for that. And good for you to Mm -hmm. take a sabbatical. Like that's kind of mentality that that rest is central to recovery and and spiritual health. Um, Some of those ideas are shoved aside because of productivity and this like maniacal work ethic or whatever we, whatever sickness Mm. we want to label that is um, when we're speaking about, Spiritual maturity and leadership, we're talking about, or, or friendship, I might say, companioning, or just mm-hmm. uh, friendship. We are really talking about this inside job. You know, we're talking about not results in the exterior world yet. We're talking mm-hmm. about an inside job that happens in our inner world. Yeah. And that's what you're getting to in this book all over the place. Yeah. And part of that would be making sure you take a sabbatical when you need one, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. For a lot of church leaders, that's going to be not just a foreign concept. Like some people, it's never even come into their consciousness that that's possible, that's a good idea, or maybe it's going to look lazy, you know, instead of, right? Yeah. 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 It's definitely, um, I think the, it brings up all kinds of different things for different people. Um, But but being uh, self-aware enough and having tools to be able to do the inner work required you know, to confront, okay, why am I resisting a sabbatical or what, like, why does this feel threatening to me? Like learning to ask those kinds of questions in a non-threatening way, knowing that God's present, knowing that God cares. Uh, that's a big part of the kind of work that we do both locally at our church, but also in gravity. Um, Mm -hmm. and again, where these axioms kind of came out of. Well, I'm going to jump to a few points of interest. Again, this book is just chucked full, doing it a disservice to just pull out a few things, but we're not doing an all-day workshop, so I'm just forced to do it. Um, But I'm going to go to page 75 and ask you guys to speak a little bit to this idea of being present with God in reality and also spiritual bypassing. This is one of those things that is seldom understood, I think, 
um, I like how you have laid it out here. And I just thought maybe you could speak to this a little bit. People can get into it more in the book, but what are you driving at? Yeah. Well, a previous iteration of this axiom was worded, God is so real, he most fully meets us right where we really are. Mm. And I thought, we thought it was too wordy. Also, I thought I had taken that from Thomas Merton, but try as I may, I, I couldn't find him saying that. So it was like, well, I don't want to like quote him and it's not him, but I also don't want to not quote him and then, you know, get, get called uh, like plagiarizing. Uh, so anyway, we changed it. And so, yeah, spiritual bypassing is when we use spiritual practices, prayer, scripture, church, Chris Tomlin, to avoid, <laughs> to avoid uncomfortable or unwanted feelings or situations. So... Um, Karl Marx is famous for calling religion the opiate of the masses. And I think that spiritual bypassing is when we use religion as a way to avoid or escape our lives. And it can lead to uh, the, a buildup, I guess, of, of kind of a, a, a plaque in our souls and our hearts that sort of hardens us and insulates us and actually distances us from God, right? So we're trying to distance ourselves from pain or hurt or, or badness or unwanted things. And, and what that does unintentionally is keep us away from the presence of God and the love of God that can actually deal with those things. And so that's, that's what spiritual bypassing is. I, I, you know, something I do want to say, Lisa, about spiritual bypassing is that and we don't say this in the book, Ben, I don't think. Maybe this will be in uh, addition to. Um, I think many of us don't didn't intentionally choose to spiritual bypass if we've done that, but it was a survival mechanism. It was an adaptation, a coping mechanism. And so I just, we don't say this in the book, and I think we need to, that uh, sometimes spiritual mm. bypassing is the best we can do in the moment. It, it keeps us alive, it preserves us, it protects us, and mm. we're just trying to cope. The, the problem becomes when a coping mechanism mm. for a crisis situation becomes a way of life. I, don't, I think that needs to be said as we talk about it. Can you also uh, just give a, an example of what a spiritual bypass would look like? Tell me what it looks like in regular life. It can be someone visiting you in the hospital and you just lost your daughter to leukemia and somebody says to you, well, I guess God just needed another angel in heaven. You know, it can be some of these glib phrases, like if God brought you to it, he'll bring you through it. Or God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It's sort of refusing to look at difficulty, hardness, evil, badness, and appreciate, take account for what it actually is. So when people say that to us, hey, God just needed another um, angel, and ain't another angel in heaven, that person is probably unintentionally, not consciously, they think they're caring for the one who suffered loss, but they're really caring for themselves. You know, they're really caring for their own anxiety about this situation that makes them feel uncomfortable yeah. or bad. Yeah. Ben, how would you, would you answer that in a more specific way? I would add like they're attempting to care for themselves and for you, right? It's like, this is, this is the best I've got uh, is like the, what feels the most threatening in that moment is to feel this anxiety about like, oh my gosh, why did, why did the, 
why did the girl die? Or, you know, like to feel that anxiety feels like the most threatening mm-hmm. thing. So whatever we need to say yeah. to assuage the anxiety, that's how we care for each other. Right. So that, that's their assumption. Right. Um, in those, uh, in those moments, I, I, I think too, that another form of spiritual bypassing is to try to like punch ourselves in the spiritual kidneys to make ourselves feel better. You know what I mean? So like if I'm feeling depressed or if my marriage isn't going very well, or if I'm having trouble communicating with my coworkers, like whatever kind of negative thing might be like on the periphery of our consciousness, uh, you know what I need? I need to go to that worship conference or I need to like, just pump myself up a bit. I need to pray more. I need to, um, fast maybe a little bit, a little bit more. And so I think that's another way of spiritual bypassing is we can use things that in and of themselves are not good or bad. Um, they're, they're fine and and can actually be helpful spiritual practices in many ways, but oftentimes we use them as a, as a, (laughs) I mean, to go back to Karl Marx as an opiate, we use it as a way of not feeling the discomfort of, man, I have big questions about this and, oh, I'm afraid of what might happen if I tell the truth to my boss about how I feel about this job, you know, like all of, all of those kinds of negative things, we can sort of try to just assuage our feelings about it by, you know, listening to our favorite worship song or, you know, going into our prayer closet, but we're not using those disciplines to, to help us face reality. We're using those disciplines to, to help us avoid reality. I think that's the key with spiritual bypassing. I appreciate that. I think also too, also putting on a brave face for other people will mm-hmm. be a way it turns up to. Mm-hmm. So something comes up and they're like, Hey, how you doing? Well, the Lord will provide, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm trusting, I'm praying. Maybe a very painful time and yeah. you don't want to be yeah. vulnerable or, and you can be vulnerable with the people you're safest with. But I think sometimes we'll say, well, you know, God wants me to muscle through this instead of just actually feeling the really sad, hurt, disappointed yeah. Yeah. And this is connected, I think, a little bit, Lisa, to what I was talking about in terms of taking care of ourselves. I, I remember um, I remember having an experience where I spent about a year working for someone who was an abusive person and in coming home and telling that story to somebody really close to me. Um, and this person, um, I had moved across the country and back and I was telling the story and getting kind of emotional. And this person responded to me and said, see, that's why I thought you never should have gone to work there. Unhelpful. <laughs> right, right. And I remembered in that moment, this is why I don't self-disclose to yeah, you. Yeah, right. Like you aren't safe for me here. Mm-hmm. So so I think I think this is another caveat that I'll yeah. go in addition to, Ben. It, it it's why it's not wise for me to entrust myself to people who can't bear that. Right, and it's not spiritual bypassing to say, you know, it was a hard season, but we're back, yeah. and I, I have some hope, because to say any more to that person mm-hmm. opens me up to, yeah. opens me and that person up to places where we're unable to care for each other, mm-hmm. and I, I think knowing that is is wisdom, and it's not unwise to not yeah. self-disclose to people who can't bear right. it, and just good to know, hey, that person just spiritually bypassed. Right. I don't have to get yeah. actually like. Right blasted with yeah. with <laughs> disappointment and hurt and betrayal It'd be like you know that that's kind of on them i'm hurting yeah. but that hurt a lot but it doesn't actually have to hurt as much when i know what they're doing they're avoiding feeling hurt too because that's yeah. frightening for them 
it's, it's just a great concept. We see it a lot. Once you start looking for spiritual bypassing, yeah. it's like, boom, you see it everywhere, right? And just yeah. like that you put that in there because it's really prevalent, like this weed that grows up in like the garden of our heart. And then once you see it, you're like, whoa, okay, I don't have to get slammed every time that winds up interacting, you know, in my life. Yeah. And I'll just say a word too here about how, I mean, why we call these axioms and you read through them. I appreciate you doing that. But these feel like the important, they're almost like little memes for us to come back to and hold on to. Because in the moment, like when I'm tempted to spiritually bypass or if I notice myself doing it, like it is really helpful to have something memorable to come back to, to say, okay, Mm -hmm. God meets me right in the middle of my messy reality. I don't need to spiritually bypass here. I don't need to like uh, feel better about God before I come to God. Uh, God's right here and I can invite, like God's present to this messy reality and I can be present to God in this moment um, even though I don't know what to think or how God's at work or what I'm going to do or anything. I can just meet, I can just be here. And it's really helpful to have. So that's what we try to make these as memorable as possible so that they do function as like, okay, I can grab hold of this in a moment of crisis or difficulty. I don't have to go back and read a whole like theology of God's presence. There's a quick little phrase that I can grab onto. Yeah. And the thing about the book and the axioms is that this is stuff you're going to bump into really regularly. You're going to hit it all the time. So the axioms are like showing you the stuff you're going to interact with all the time and then get kind of a foothold and, okay, I can climb up this mountain a little bit better. Yeah, I'd like to jump over to an exercise you have people do. And in a section around 115, there's this disconnect that we have oftentimes that God's work in us um, and God's work through us. And then you have, you invite people on 115 to write a collect and as an experiment of trust. And maybe you could just explain what you're doing with this exercise. And in this page 114, a little bit of what's going on there. I would appreciate if you could just give our listeners a peek. Yeah. Ben, you want to chat about uh, writing collects? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so a, a collect is a it's a specific kind of prayer. Um, it's kind of time honored in um, you know Christian tradition, um, and it's a way of kind of gathering up uh, whatever you perceive uh, God to be doing, or you know whatever problem maybe that you're facing. Um, it's a way of gathering those things up and offering them to God and being present to God uh, in the midst of that in the midst of that reality. This axiom um, is stated that God's work through us is the same as God's work uh, in us. God does the same work through us and in us uh, is another way of saying it. Um, and we've just we've noticed that there is um, a tendency for some people to perhaps want God to work through them, but there's a resistance to God's work in them, right? So this is the leader types, you know, maybe that we've talked about that are eager to sort of prove their value uh, mm-hmm. by, hey, my church is growing or people mm-hmm. really appreciate me. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna uh, to read in order to uh, have something to share. And so people mm-hmm. will like me or appreciate me, that kind of a thing. But then there's also another kind of person, I think, that is happy to receive from God and receive from others. Mm-hmm. But there's a resistance to 
allowing that work to flow through us. Mm. And I think there's something about the exercise of writing a collect um, that helps us to connect to these things because prayer is one of the ways that God works through us. Mm. That uh, prayer is not just uh, a, a me sort of begging God to do something for me. Prayer is an invitation from God to say, what, will you participate in my power at work in the world? Like it's a way of releasing God's power into the world, actually, through prayer. And so in this exercise, we ask people to just reflect on what most grabbed their attention from the chapter, uh, rooting that then in a prayer that can be, it's a, it's a written out prayer that you can pray, you know, again and again and again. And it's a prayer that you can share uh, with other people. Um, and a collect is, uh, it, it comprises a, an address of God, a declaration of some attribute or action of God, a specific request of God, and then oftentimes the reason for the request or the hope for result, mm-hmm. and then a Christological or a Trinitarian uh, finale uh, mm-hmm. along with an amen. Writing your own collect, I think, can be a really uh, interesting, and there's a bunch of examples in the Book of Common Prayer and other places. That there's people who have begun to do this regularly. Mm-hmm. But I think writing your own collect out of your own experience can be a really powerful way of meeting with God in whatever reality that you happen to be in, but also then participating in God's power at work in the world by making this very specific request and perhaps sharing that prayer with other people as well so they can pray with you uh, in that. Anything to add, Matt? Yeah, I think we, we... We, we need to relearn how to pray. Um, you know, um, I, I, uh, I've I said before on our podcast that I, I mastered divinity 20 years ago and was never taught how to pray. Um, and so it's something that the disciples actually asked Jesus to do. Like, um, you, you know how to pray. I and mean, it wasn't that the disciples didn't pray. It's just that they knew that... Um, saw something in Jesus and knew that a rabbi, this is what a rabbi does. It teaches us how to relate to God. And so one of the things that a collect does is it reorients us in prayer to, and teaches us how to pray. Yeah. Uh, so prayer isn't rubbing a genie or trying to convince God to show up or uh, demonstrating your piety, et cetera, et cetera. But it's rather a surrender. It's a consent. It's an openness. It's an opening. And um, just like, you know, when we gather together to sing songs together, we don't all make up the lyrics as we go. Because we, tr- we trust that this person who's written this song has put in good work and we can give ourselves over to these lyrics. And as we do, mm-hmm. as we do, uh, sometimes our, sometimes we feel things we didn't know we had to feel or could feel. Sometimes we yeah. surrender to the song rather than um, the song is a, is a ex- self, uh, uh, accurate self-expression, right? And it's the same mm-hmm. thing with prayer. Um, I think, I think moving closer to, seeing prayer as something we surrender to and consent to, it actually teaches us to pray in a way that we commune with God rather than using prayer as a way to control God sometimes. Yeah, the transactional. Sure. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting how we will objectify God instead of, you know, yes. like who wants to be objectified, right? It's not a relationship. If you're objectified, hey, yeah. I want something. Mm-hmm. This transactional thing so rude, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but we'll do it. We'll be like, I want this thing to happen. Yeah, and I think I- embedded in that, and this is why I think like 
trying to write something that is in this format can be so helpful because it does include an address of God and some attribute or action of God that is the basis on which I'm making this prayer. Mm. And so in, in a sense, that prayer then uh, is also shaping my vision of God. Because I think if all we do is we just sort of vomit our desires to God, we do sort of whatever vision or image or picture or impression that we have of God just remains static. And oftentimes it's it's off. We do think of God as a genie in a bottle or the old man in the sky or somebody who's very disinterested that I have to convince to care about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I start my prayer with, you know, something like, Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world. Well, now I've, okay, I'm orient. This is the God I'm praying to, mm. um, whose Son, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world. And now I'm praying that, you know, God would illumine uh, your people with your word and sacraments and shine, that, that, that we may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known and worshiped and obeyed to the end of the earth. Um, and so it, it helps us to, to shape our vision of who God is, um, which, you know, gets back to third axiom uh, that God is just like Jesus, um, which is, it's a really important thing for us to be able to trust, uh, the character and the nature of the God that we are praying to and that we are proclaiming is near. Well, to delve into the third and what'll be the final little exploration. Again, these are just for the listener. These are the tiniest tidbits of this book. This book is a well and we're dipping a teaspoon into this well right now so when you get the book you'll understand what i mean i want to talk a little bit about what ben was edging towards with with faith and trust and there's a part in the conclusion on page 153 that begins to talk about faith and trust and cooperative action in what god is doing and there's a little quote in here by Dallas Willard, we believe something when we act as if it's true. That's one of those little things that when you read that again, you're like, oh, right, of course. Of course we believe something when we act as if it's true. But how many times do we say we believe something and then we don't really act as if it's true? We don't put our faith in it. We we just uh, cross our fingers or we kind of like tiptoe along. There's this graphic on page 160 and since this is audio, this is not going to be that helpful, but um, <laughs> there's this three circles. Cooperative action leads to compassionate awareness, leads to create alignment. And if you could uh, just speak to some of this, believing is acting as if something's true and faith is taking cooperative action in what God is doing. Um, it would be great to kind of end on this note. Yeah, I can start. And then Matt, you can maybe fill sure. in um with what we mean by the the three interconnected um, movements uh, of faith in that diagram. Uh, But I think when I hear Dallas Willard say something like, we believe something when we act as if it's true, I think what that does for me and and what we're driving at at this chapter is that there's actually this freedom for me to act in faith even before I feel certain about something. Mm -hmm. And that's been the, the biggest freedom for me is like, I think before and I still fall for this sometimes, but I used to think of faith as me feeling sort of mentally and emotionally certain about a fact that I know about God. So, uh, you know, God is love. Do I feel certain about that? Well, then, then I can act as if it's true. And so my work ended up being, how can I become more certain about this? And so I try to jam more Bible into my head 
you know, and the Bible's great. You know, I think the daily reading of scripture is a wonderful discipline, but you, you can get where I'm going here, right? That I, I was trying to become more certain about something so that I would sort of automatically act as if it were true. But I think the freedom that we've found in these axioms and the freedom that we found in faith, learning to walk in faith, is that I don't need to be 100% certain about something before I can take a small step, an experimental step of trust. And so the question then becomes more open and curious, like, okay, well, what would I do if I believed this were true? What would I do if I believed that God was present and at work in this situation? Well, I guess I would, maybe I would just be open about how I feel about it in God's presence instead of feeling bad about how I feel about it, right? Maybe I could be angry with God, you know? Maybe I could spend 10 minutes angrily writing in my journal, you know, like in prayer, like maybe that's what I could do. Or, or maybe I could make this phone call to this person that I feel estranged from, knowing that God is at work in our relationship to connect us and that reconciliation is possible here. And, you know, God's at work in the midst of that. So it's these small steps of making the phone call and spending 10 minutes journaling or, I mean, it's, there's an infinite variety uh, of these things. But uh, I think what we're driving at here is that we don't need to sort of become mentally certain of these things. All we need to do is notice when our lives aren't aligning with what we want to believe and just take a small step, just take a tiny little step of faith and let's treat it as an experiment. What would we do if we believe this were true? Well, just let's do that. And that's actually mm-hmm. faith. That is faith, is me practicing my faith by, all right, I'm going to take that step. I'm going to make the phone call. I'm going to have the conversation. I'm going to, um, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. One of the, one of the legacies, Lisa, that I know you're aware of, um, just in reading your book, your excellent book, is how we tend to internalize and and make cognitive uh, belief. So we're we're kind of caught up in a in a world that um, has had a split between the material and the spiritual, between the external and the internal, and you know th- that's a whole different podcast to describe like the cultural forces in the last five hundred years that have led to us prioritizing rational, cognitive, internal, private, individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the costs of that is that belief has become a synonym for think. Yeah. And in scripture, it is not a synonym for think. And so one of the things we do in our training is reclaim this ground that to believe something is to act as though it's true. It's an embodied demonstration of trust. And so... So, for instance, when, when uh, Peter says, hey, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water, and Jesus says, it's I, come, Peter doesn't close his, Peter doesn't close his eyes and pat his heart and say, Lord, that is so good. I'm going to hide your word in my heart. Can you say it again so I can get that feeling again? <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then when you, say, when you say it again, I'm going to try harder to agree with it. That is yeah. not at all what faith is. Believing is stepping on, just getting out of the boat. And, and so as much as possible, we want to reclaim this ground, this material, external, communal, corporate ground as the arena in which we believe or don't. And, and that's what this conclusion is meant to help us do, to get these axioms into our bodies and out into our relationships. 
and imagine the consequences, right? So love your enemy. Imagine if you believed that was true. Imagine if you believed, right? The kingdom of God and what Jesus said, that's how it works. You love your enemy if you are one of Jesus' disciples. So how would you act? So I know this is like talking backwards and this is sort of explaining the obvious, but how often do we just act like, well, yeah, I heard that thing, but are we acting like we love our enemies? Mm -hmm. Are we acting as if that's something we believe in, something that's true? Because we would really act differently. We wouldn't act in hostility. We wouldn't be bracing ourselves at every second for threats. Yeah, I think that gets to um, just the the figure, the diagram that you mentioned, um, which is a big part of our training of, of leaders. Actually, there's an expanded version of this that we that we train mm-hmm. leaders in, um, and I think the the movement there. I think your example is great because the movement there is the is the curiosity that we do try to train uh, people to practice. And so, for example, love your enemies is a command of Jesus. And I think if we find, if I find myself resistant to loving my enemies, if I'm not fully free to joyfully love my enemies, and if I know what that means, like if I know who my enemy is and all of that kind of thing, then I think that's where, that's where compassionate awareness starts. Okay, what do, what do I believe about enemies and about God and about myself that's making me resistant? Why am I afraid to love my enemies? And maybe we discover there's lies that I believe about, is God going to keep me safe? Or do I need to defend myself? Right? Is, you know, uh, how important is it for me to have a good reputation in in this person's eyes? Or there's all kinds of fears and lies that come up for us in the midst of, um, you know, in the midst of these issues and in, in the midst of, um, man, why, why is it difficult for me to, to love my enemies? And we might discover that, okay, you know, I, I don't believe that I'm safe. In, in terms of the situation. And there's, there's oftentimes a truth about who God is that we do need to embrace in order to maybe step into a situation where it would be wise to. And that, I mean, that specific situation demands a lot of, <laughs> it demands a lot of uh, wisdom uh, because there are certainly uh, certain kinds of enemies um, that yeah, it's just, it demands a lot of wisdom to know what does that mean to love uh, our enemies. But taking that experimental step of trust, of loving our enemies, has to be rooted in some truth about who God is for me um, and who I am in God and maybe, a, a, you know, who I am in community that empowers me to make that choice and to take that step of faith. Well, we're down towards the end. I wanted to make sure that if there's anything you wanted to say about the book, and again, listeners that promo is spark 22 that'll help you help them get some sales going at the very beginning which would be really great um, support ben and matt and what they're doing with gravity leadership i just wanted to give you a chance to say anything you want about the book or the work that you're doing yeah i guess lisa the one thing that maybe didn't come through on this interview that seems central to the book project for me is this book really came out of two things for ben and i one is we were coaching and training leaders, discipling them, and we were talking past each other. Mm. Um, and we realized we had to name some grounding assumptions that we had, because unless we did that, um, you know, when we said God is always present and at work, uh, it wasn't landing. Well, one of the reasons why is because the people had images of God that they didn't want to be present. They were trying to stay away from this kind of God because uh, that God is abusive or toxic or scary right. or or mean. And so, um, really, it come, these we're naming things as we go, 
Uh, and so these come out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of discipling leading relationships. But two, this work is also a work for Ben and I, um, like a, a repentance, yeah. right? So we inherited um, frames mm-hmm. and uh, constructs that weren't faithful. And when they stopped working or did bad work in our lives or other people's lives, we had to go back to Jesus and say, what are we missing? Oh, this is what we're missing, right? We're, we're so busy trying to accomplish things for God that we aren't paying attention to the ground zero of the inbreaking of the kingdom in my own life. Yeah. I can't squeeze breakthrough out of, out of a dry plot of land and so uh, for other people. So all that to say is um, I think this book is then our our journey, um, some of our travel notes of how to reconstruct a faith that's worth that you would wish on your friends, that you would wish on people you love. And, um, you know, it's our attempt to say, here's what we've learned about that. Yeah. And I'll just add, you know, the, the word deconstruction is, I mean, a lot of people are talking, you know, about it, but I actually think it's a really helpful at least a helpful concept, um, because I, I think, you know, Matt mentioned that reconstructing uh, a faith um, that is more faithful and looks more like uh, the faith that Jesus so- shows us uh, in his humanity. Um, and I think I think there was some implicit and quiet deconstruction that had been happening for Matt and I for several years, and that's why we started to miss uh, miss each other, you know, in these coaching and discipling relationships. And learning to articulate what those shifts were, the, what the paradigm shift was, and not, not just a shift in th- sort of the content of the theology, but a shift in the way that we saw everything kind of playing out. And some, you know, like the, uh, a shift in our glasses prescription had changed. And uh, we were trying to be able to articulate that. And then in so doing, invite others into the same kind of reshaping and shifting of paradigms that... Uh, we hope, look more like Jesus and look more like the world that Jesus saw, the God that Jesus saw, um, the, you know, the faith that Jesus was able to uh, inhabit. And so that that's, it's an ongoing project. These aren't like the eight axioms that forever will be the things that everybody needs to believe about God. These are just naming significant paradigm shifts for us. And I think for other people that we're in relationship with, that help us to reconstruct a more faithful uh, vision of who God is. Uh, and I think they will continue to evolve. We'll probably discover new things that need to be mm-hmm. said and maybe old things that uh, no longer need to be said. Um, and so this is just part of an ongoing yeah, journey for Matt and I. Yeah, I wanted to speak to, to something you were nibbling at the edges of a little bit and, and just kind of drill down into it. Something I covered in my book as well, The, the Wild Land Within, is that there's this empire Christianity that people in the United States are part of that we, we don't really realize as, as white people yeah. and for you yeah. guys as white males. And you address this in the book, things about power and coming to grips with or addressing, confronting, what does it mean to be what you look like in the world? What does that mean for other people that you're leading? And those are really important questions to ask that sometimes just never get asked. And it Mm -hmm. makes a huge difference to the people you're leading who don't look like you. And so that's one of the things that I was so happy to see in the book, because these questions need to be asked because we're really living in a time of a lot of flux (laughs) and a lot of um, chaos. And it's not made 
better by the same types of people saying, just listen to my authority. I, I'm, I'm the authority and my way is the Christian way and the way I see things is the right way. And so addressing those things by having people ask questions of themselves, like how have I seen my power? How have I maybe misunderstood how I am in the world? Just great stuff to make sure that people are taking a kind of inventory. And I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you mentioning that, uh, Lisa, that, that, that chapter emerged. You look at our book proposal for this book and it has seven axioms. And so this, this chapter emerged as we were writing because of like a lot of these other axioms emerged several years ago, but this one is one that's real time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's not like what we need to know about power from, from now on. It's just what we're learning about seeing our own power. As you mentioned, like our social location, uh, makes this, I think for us as white, you know, males in America, it makes it actually very difficult because power has always sort of worked for us. It feels invisible to us. Um, we attribute, you know, the results of our social power to, you know, what maybe our giftedness or our, you know, charisma or people just like my personality. That's why they listen to me, um, you know, or, or whatever it might be. But we, uh, we're learning real time from marginalized voices and other kinds of people to evaluate power dynamics and learning to read scripture in such a way that we see, man, this is all over the place. Jesus is always confronting and addressing people differently based on their social location, based on power dynamics, based on this stuff is all over the place and we're just beginning to see it. And so it's another example of, I think, how this is a living document that continues to evolve uh, as we go forward. Right. And and how God draws us into deeper and deeper growth and deeper and deeper depth and how God yeah. is actually the gospel comes from the margins. I thinking mm-hmm. that that we are always taught by the people on the margins. Even if leadership is coming from the demographic of majority, the gospel still comes from the margins and teaches us the good news, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I'm always humbled by that. As leaders, you're teaching people to listen ask better questions, listen with better ears. You know, it's, it's really, really the hope. I think the hope we have that we become like Jesus, that we become these good listeners with ears to hear and and eyes to see. So I'm, I'm just so happy to have you on here. Well done with this book. Yeah. Once again, just, just congratulations. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Great to be with you, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. It's been a joy to be with you.